Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Today I feature Nigerian artist Ike Ude. He is a photographer, a performance artist, and an author of several books. He is an esthete with a brilliant mind. Hence, in 2017, Ike spoke during a global TED Talk in Tanzania to discuss his book, Nollywood Portraits, A Radical Beauty. He is also founder and publisher of Rude Magazine, and Vanity Fair International Best Dress List featured him in 2009, 2012, and 2015. Artsy ranked him, along with Rembrandt, Van Gogh, Warhol, among the top 10 masters of the self-portrait. Welcome, Ike Ude. Ike, thank you for joining me today on my podcast. Let's begin by you sharing with us the birth of your practice. Um... I commenced my practice as an artist uh, formally in 1994. But before then, um, I had worked as a painter and was championed by the great art patron and maestro by name, Henry Getzeller who was very um, instrumental to the careers of uh, Warhol, Hockney, Basquiat, Keith Haring, Francesco Clemente, and the likes in the 80s. But he died in 1994. Then I, be- I met uh, a dear friend of mine named Lyle, Ashton Harris, and uh, we had a wonderful, um, fertile, artistic friendship. And meeting him helped me to transition from painting to conceptual art. And that led to my seminal body of work in 19... 94, called the Cover Girl series. I remember that series. You do? I do. I loved it. It was interesting, thought-provoking, and the words that you would choose on your covers were, were intellectually challenging. Yes. Uh, so, um, uh, we were at, at the forefront if you like, the vanguard of contemporary gender discourse. Um, And I had 
thought that it would be most contagious to employ the magazine frame, the magazine cover as a frame to engage gender discourse. And by using popular magazines such as Vogue, uh, Rolling Stones, Ebony, Arena, Esquire, Vanity Fair, Vanity, Vanity Fair. <laughs> by doing so, it would blur the gap between fiction and nonfiction and invariably would draw the attention of um, many a people and and it did it, it 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 succeeded because people would look at the magazine titles they're familiar with for the newsstands but the, the captions on the cover of the cover go series was quite different it was quite radically different very radical yes and uh it speaks about the issue of gender as a societal construct and um, alludes to the various permutations of how we construct race, gender, and sexuality in our cultures. And some of the discrepancies, some of its paradoxes, and, um, and many other variables. Did one of your, one of your uh, issues was titled Gender God and RuPaul, and yes. RuPaul was on yeah. the cover? Yes, uh, so um, shortly after the magazine, uh, the Cover Girl series, Cover Girl series, yes. I began to do um, a more secular magazine uh, in the public sphere called A Rude Magazine, A-R-U-D. E, a Rude Magazine, and it was named as such in homage to the West Indian Rude Boys of London in 1960s to introduce a rather fetching, cool, C-O-O-L, cool quotient, <laughs> cool question to the London scene. And by so doing, um, the likes of the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, David Bowie, and what have you, the white English lads became cool by imitating the uh, the root boys of the Caribbeans. So it was an homage to the Caribbean root boys of London 60s, the swinging London 60s <laughs> that are named Magazine Root. But I put a little air in front of Rude because Americans have no history of the Rude Boys movement. So if I were to not put the air, they would be very miffed by a magazine called Rude, Rude. Magazine. So, <laughs> uh, so yes, um, so the first issue was um, uh, I interviewed, I had a very rather lengthy interview with the great uh, dancer and choreographer Bill T. Jones. 
Uh, that was my first cover subject or cover girl subject, if you like, um, in the mainstream. And I was seconded by a cover, uh, by an issue titled uh, God, Gender, and RuPaul, because RuPaul was, uh, just came out with, uh, with, with his, her uh, hit, hit, hit song, called uh, You Better Work, or <laughs> Supermodel, You Better Work. And that was a big song at the time. So uh, I interviewed him and put him on the cover of that uh, because he was just like hot on the heel of my cover girl series. Um, so that was quite a very, very wonderful, fun time. But since then, I think that the gender discourse has... Uh, has uh, gone out of control. If you if you allow, it become. Um, Feel free a, to speak. Feel free to share your opinion. It become a Pandora's box of sorts. Uh oh. You know <laughs> where you have uh, people having various uh, gender identity claims every week. And um, I'm afraid uh, it would render the whole uh, uh, um, gender, it would render the whole gravitas of intelligent discourse on race, gender, and sexuality uh, mute and ridiculous. That is. That is what I see happening. There ought to be some kind of uh, reasonable perimeters whereby we argue identity um, uh, in a very, very uh, uh, reasonable uh, way uh, without having to have have it open-ended because uh, when you have things open-ended, it has no framework. And anything anything without any framework in the end um, uh, boils down to the nonsensical and the ridiculous. So there's a universe of people out there that would agree disagree with you. Oh, I'm sure, and uh, but to disagree doesn't is isn't enough, right? Uh, if you disagree with something, you have to offer a very intelligent um, as uh, op, um, uh, argument, argument, and uh, unreasonable uh, sound compelling reason why you disagree. But in, I, I'm afraid in this, in this day and age, people don't argue reason. They do name calling, which is a very quick way to shut you down, right? Name calling is not an, uh, a sound argument. It's quite daft. It's quite appallingly, um, uh, it has, it, it, it's, it's, it's appallingly um, self-righteous. Uh, it's, it's not, it's not uh, an engagement, name calling.
So, I.K., why do you think it's important for gender identity to be sensical? Because if it's nonsensical, then we have no culture. Culture is about the, the sensical, right? Uh, in, uh, human beings have, um, we live in a binary. We have a binary between nature slash biology, which is very wild and primitive, and we have a, uh, the, uh, the culture part of us. Uh, the latter came, came second. The cultural part of us came second. And it's something that we constructed, right? So um, the idea of gender uh, identity is a construct. And uh, when, you, when you do, or when you have a construct, you have to have some kind of frame around it. Otherwise, there is no construct. It's, it's, it's uh, free fall, it, it's nonsensical, it's ridiculous. Do you think your views are controversial in some ways? Um, if, if, it, if it is uh, controversial, uh, it is by default, not by design. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I do want to circle back to Arud, mm-hmm. uh, only because I want to brag about the fact that I actually worked with you and was co-publisher on a couple issues and had the pleasure of um, meeting and spending time with Christian Louboutin. I remember we spent, I think it was an hour and a half, we were in a hotel room with Jane Birkin, yes. and that was a real treat. She's just so delightful. Yes, indeed. Uh, and then Manolo Blahnik, uh, Diane von Furstenberg. Uh, and Robert Smith, I can't forget Robert Smith, and Reggie Van Lee, um, Caroline Herrera. Yes, yes it was uh, a great experience. I think I was co-publisher with you, if I remember correctly, on two issues. We went to Paris, had yeah. a fantastic time there. Yeah, we went yeah. to Milan, yeah, yeah. and it was it was it was just a, uh, enlightening. It was an adventure. I, I absolutely loved it. But after I left, I remember you did. Publish a few more articles. Can you elaborate on on, on where the magazine is now? What you're doing now? Um, after after you left the magazine, I mean, uh, not it didn't just completely. I didn't uh, leave. Yeah, I didn't leave, <laughs> so to speak. I but, took a departure. Yeah, yeah. But afterwards, um, I did a few more issues until 2009, when it became very clear that. Um, the internet is the preeminent media, and uh, the world of print, print magazines, and the newsstand shrunk, and it became very apparent to me early that the newsstand is on the palm of the hand, in the way of smartphones, so. I even went as far as uh, uh, saying that at this juncture, the printing of magazines and newspapers is 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 uh, it's quite uh, environmentally responsible because you don't need to, you don't have to go to the news center to get news. Why print waste all these papers and the trees? And uh, so I, I stopped printing in 2009, and, um, and a, a root magazine is going to come back in a book form, 
movie and art format. Uh, it's in the works. In the works. It's in the works, yeah. Good, good, good. I look yeah. forward to it. Yeah. I look forward to it. And actually on the and top... it will be called A Route 1 by 10. 1 by 10? Yeah. And why? Why? Tell me, what, what does that mean? It's, uh, it's a best kept secret, yeah. Oh, but okay. you will see, yeah. I look forward to just, it. Just remember A Route 1 by 10. Okay. Yeah. On the topic of magazines, I'm always impressed that Vanity Fair... Uh, continues to uh, make me want to buy a magazine, especially the best dress issues. You've been in three of the best dress issues, correct? That's correct. Yeah, you and Amy Fine Collins are like, have this intellectual connection in addition to both very much appreciating fashion. Yes, also not so much fashion, but uh, style. Yes, style, yes, yes, yeah. yes. Because you, there see is a, you can't distinguish between the two for sure. My, there's a huge chasm between fashion and style. Uh, fashion, especially fashion as we know it since the time of uh, Chanel or, or the couturier, um, the English couturier who lived in Paris, Worth, um, uh, or Madame Vionnet. They're the ones that ushered in the age of uh, of uh, commercial fashion where you have some individuals that are elected to dress the public and, and have a label. They began this culture of fashion labels, as uh, if you like. In 19th century, there was no necessarily like fashion labels that you go to a shop and buy off the rack. It's quite a recent um, uh, phenomenon in human history to buy off the rack before you had things made by a tailor of some sort. So, um, and then fast forward, we have uh, a plethora of fashion labels. And, uh, and I don't like, I, I never liked, I never liked the, the whole commercial fashion culture. I appreciate clothing for, uh, for the uh, how it it en uh, ennobles the uh, the naked body and spare us from some of the uh, our physical um, uh, unsightly aspects of the body. Are you saying that you disagree with Mother Nature and 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 how over time gravity works? against us? I mean, imagine, for example, right, say the Pope or even like the American president giving a speech Naked? on cloth, right? <laughs> uh, I don't want to imagine I, that. I think we quite distracted. No? I think so. Yeah, so, so that's like one example <laughs> of just how much for all, the, how much fashion ennobles the naked body. Yes, but even a beautiful body even would the, distract. It would see distract, exactly. Yes. So fashion does have a very ennobling and civilizing uh, <laughs> qualities that it imbues us on a daily basis. Even the dead is clothed. Even the dead are clothed <laughs> in the coffin. Yes, it tells you how much distracting the body is, isn't it? That is that is the that on that plus the fact too that fashion is, is the index of culture. Uh, when you look at the picture painting, drawing, however crudely, even some primitive drawings, um, you, you, you tend to locate 
the subject based on how they're cloth or how they are accessorized or the hairstyle of them than anything else. So that is how fashion is also a way to distinguish professions, whether it be the, a policeman, even within the police department, they have different fashions where you have by ranks and different quirks, colors and badges. These are all, all markers and indexes and ciphers of of fashion. When I talk about fashion, the way I use fashion in my artwork is not a, not to deal with labels at all, which I, I couldn't care less. It's about how fashion codifies our existence and maintains hierarchies mm. of cultures in different spheres and um, distinguishes us as well. Um, so th so th uh, those are my interests. And um, in, uh, if you allow, I use the appalling word fashion to, uh, to say, uh, those are my interests in fashion in that, in that sense. So I've noticed that in the art world, I, I've been beginning to notice that there's an intersection between art and fashion because there are some high-end retail stores that are hosting events where they'll feature an artist or they'll feature a collection of art, mm -hmm. but they'll also hire a DJ to provide, I guess, background music or, or music. Yeah. So it's an intersection of art, fashion. Architecture, even. Yes. Architecture and, as well. And they music. Work, and architecture as well. They yes. work with architects. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think basically uh, fashion is very, very promiscuous, an industry. So they're always finding ways to, uh, to um, um, expand their reach, uh, to um, tease, to seduce, and to valorize the industry from commercial to something more uh, cultural uh, with some kind of cultural gravitas. So they will work with someone like Rem Kuhaus or Tado Ando or Herzog de Meron, the, the um, Dutch um, uh, duo architects. So they would uh, work in collaboration with uh, great architects of our time. And then they will have something like an art foundation. Like you have the Prada Foundation in Milan. You have the Louis Vuitton Foundation, I think. And um, yes, they have some yeah. excellent exhibitions. And I think even like Trussard, they have an art foundation as well in Milan. So they've got these um, foundations where they display their art collections or even have an in-house um, director or curator uh, of exhibitions to take care of their foundations. And it, it gives them uh, a cultural gravitas mm -hmm. so that they just not looked upon a just mere commercial fashion peddlers, you know, who peddle uh, new collections, quote unquote, new collections like every season. I think the, the, the commercial uh, uh, intersection of art and uh, art 
art in quotation mark and fashion is quite um, crass <laughs> and and south of desirability. Why do you say that? Because at, at, because at that point, it's, 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 uh, it's entertainment, you know, it's not... Uh, uh, art, art offers you uh, a space uh, to contemplate and to think and to um, reflect and um, and some uh, degree of um, quietude and and less noise the the other the other kind of um, fashion art engage cross engagement is too noisy and too ephemeral and um, quite frankly um, inconsequential in the end mm. I love listening to your perspective on things. And on that note, I want to talk about the global TED Talk that you did. I would love for you to share with the audience that, that experience and what you talked about and even perhaps the preparation for it. Um, the, okay, so when I was in boarding school in um, Nigeria, I, I was in the debating club society. So I'm used to debating in in, uh, um, in public, which I quite enjoyed, actually. I can tell. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and But the TED Talk was quite something else in terms of um, its preparations. They're very, very strict, strict with the time window they give you to spend on the stage. And uh, they want each and every speaker to get to the point and be very clear Clarity in language, clarity in objectivity of the talk, clarity in subject matter, clarity in theme, and you name it. So they have you go through this hoop and rehearsal over and over and over again just to make sure that um, you meet all the requirements and on time that they allocate you, whether it's eight minutes or the longest time they give you sometimes 15 minutes. I was given 15 minutes. They found me a bit, a bit cuter than other speakers, I suppose. <laughs> so they gave me 15 minutes. And what did you, what did you discuss? Um, I started with um, the uh, work I did for the Guggenheim Museum in 1996 is called um, Uses of Evidence. Uses of Evidence. Of Evidence. Yes. That's interesting. So it was a very large uh, installation work. Um, on the house, it measures eight feet in height and four feet on the four squares. It's a square. It's, it's, an, it's a four-sided installation. So each side is four feet and the height is eight. So the, on the outside is a collage of um, 
routine and uh, stock images of uh, of Africa in the Western media, namely sickly disease, war, and safari images of white animals. And inside it, and there was um, windows on each side of the um, of the uh, installation piece. If you look through the window, you see a very tranquil, domestic scenes of Nigeria and Africa of my family and friends. They played polo, they played cricket, they drank tea, they had weddings. There was no white animals involved in the disease. So that was, that was, that was that's why it was called uh, use of evidence, because you can see the contrast between the outside, how we are portrayed in the Western media, and how we are, how we really are, and how we see ourselves. And what was what was the inspiration behind that? I mean, what? I mean, living here and uh, knowing, seeing that uh, you find how you're portrayed as very, very odd and very bizarre, as as opposed to what you know about yourself, right? Right. It doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Portray? It doesn't sink the way it's, uh, it's very, very strange. So your book, Nollywood. So I, so, so I spoke about... I would, yes, I would think the book, Nollywood, is almost an extension of that inspiration or that project. Because in your book, yeah. you highlight Nigerians the reality the film industry of Nigeria. yes 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 the reality versus this version of you know the one wall where you had diseased kids yeah, yeah, and yeah, famine yeah. and all yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of stuff yeah. so your book cements what you were i mean this is just my opinion what do i know right but it seems the impression i get is that nollywood cements a more positive and realistic image of Nigerians. Yes, in actually, the media. I, I think it's may, maybe uh, it is subconscious, but I think that uh, the Nollywood portraiture uh, uh, is a very needed, grand correction on on the the African image and how to and how to truly see the African. Uh, compared to uh, how they are portrayed in the Western media. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, uh, so it is It is corrective and it is factual and it is verifiable as well. So during the TED Talk, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt so, you, but during the TED Talk, did you get a, an opportunity to address? Yes, I spoke about Nollywood. I spoke about the uh, the Cover Grove uh, series. What else did I speak about in the, in the uh, TED Talk? I think it was mostly about the issue of uh, of representation as it pertains to African and Africans, and and some of the fallacies, some of the um, lies, some of the uh, 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 purposeful uh, crudeness they are they are portrayed. Um, in and uh, 
and offering uh, and proposing a different way that the African is and should be seen and um, uh, and hopefully hopefully should be seen uh, in the in the wider world. Yes, yes, that's important. It's an education. There's so yes. much ignorance in the world about different people, different places, different countries. So it's great that we have people of you to publish po- uh, books like that. Thank you. On the subject of art, getting back to art, so now you are working with people like Carolina Herrera, Amy Fine Collins, and producing these beautiful, elegant portraits. Let's talk about that. I think that I'm, in, uh, I'm enjoying my finest uh, hours and phase of my uh, art practice. Uh, I have this marvelous uh, 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 juncture where all of my uh, um, artistic sensibilities and aesthetics converge. Um, uh, we're talking about colors, um, uh, exquisite props, um, costumes, um, pictorial organizations, scale, textures, atmosphere, and great subject matters. So they're all together in, in this, uh, in, each, in each of the frame, in each of the frame that I, I, um, I portray my subjects. It's a wonderful, uh, uh, fabulous time uh, I am, I'm having making these portraits. And what type of research did you do beforehand? I, I, I did look at the, um, I looked at um, antiquity, of uh, the pharaonic Egyptian antiquity, Mesopotamian friezes, Assyrian friezes, um, uh, Indian miniature, Persian miniatures, and then fast forwarding, and I uh, I looked at um, um, uh, the Italian Renaissance. <laughs> And uh, moreover, the Northern Renaissance, which is lesser known, that happened in um, Holland, uh, uh, mostly, and um, um, and uh, some of the Flemish uh, painters as well. Um, I love the way they employed um, uh, the then uh, new. Uh, medium of oil um, on canvas uh, using um, uh, camera obscura and lens interventions to make photographic paintings, basically. So um, really in awe of them. And so I, I looked at your work very, very uh, studiously and judiciously. Um, so that helped me a lot in um, in in developing my my very very uh, 
uh, signature photography. Yes, the the colors. Your colors are very vibrant. Yeah. I mean, to the extent that even um, oftentimes, uh, even art experts refer to my work as paintings, which is it's not paintings. I don't use paint. I use light. Light um, photography is Greek, meaning to write with light. So all of everything I do is medium authentic. I don't, I, I don't use any extra pigment on my pictures, but they have the, they have the truth of, of pigment on them. But it's something I um, learned to do both as a former painter and uh, looking at the old masters. Yeah, I'm envisioning girl with the pearl earring. Yeah. Yeah. As you talk, yes. So I really, I really enjoy, I, I really enjoy making portraits. That's one of the times I am at my, uh, at my, um, I don't want to use the word happy because I don't like being happy or sad. <laughs> that's when, I, that's when I'm, I'm really at my element when I'm working on, on portraits. Yeah. That's great. I love your work. I love your work. I um, so Amy Fine Collins. You've done some fabulous pieces. Yeah, uh, Amy is an ongoing series. I began doing M Amy Fine Collins portraiture. So Amy is a senior correspondent for Vanity Fair. She's an art historian. She was also a former art critic for. She was a former art critic for Art in America magazine. Together with. Um, her husband, Brad Collins. And Brad now teaches at Parsons School of Art and Design, but Amy is, is a writer proper. So, um, so besides being elegant and what have you, she's an intellectual powerhouse and very, very conversant with a SWAT history of, uh, a SWAT history of art and culture. So uh, it's a very enriching friendship that I enjoy with her. So I've been I've been doing her portraiture, her portraits plural, since 20, 2009 hmm. and ongoing. Eventually, it will be an exhibition and a book and what have you. Yeah. So you were on the best dress list three times. Oh nine, 2013 and twenty fifteen. And why do you think you were chosen? I don't know. Perhaps uh, they find me rather fabulous, you know, and um, uh, they like how I dress. Uh, the way I employ clothes on a quotidian basis is constant. It's not something I do for occasionally. It's something that I, um, I enjoy doing and um, I have fun with, and I'm very, rather very um, creative with as well. Uh, so I think people do find me uh, a picture to look at. I think that, that may, I don't know why they chose me, but, uh, but besides the village voice, I've always uh, since going back to my boarding school days, I've, uh, people have always um, remarked on how I dress, that I like the way I play with clothes. 
So it's like, it's like a new reality. So this creativity and how you dress, do you consider it a form of art? It's a it's a form of uh, it's a form of, it's a form of poetry. Why did I shy away from using the word art and prefer poetry? Because uh, poetry is something that is um, almost uh, ineffable, right? Uh, it's unquantifiable, but you feel it, you know it, but it's it's ineffable. It's hard to describe. Uh, so. Uh, there, there are two functions of clothing. One, one is for practical purposes. It's practical, like in the winter, to clothe yourself to be warm. Stay warm, yes. Yeah. Rain, but, yeah. all the elements, yes. In the summer, there is no convincing or compelling argument to remain clothed, <laughs> except for cultural obligations yes. and decency. It's that simple. So... What is the argument to wear clothes in summer? For practical purposes, nothing. It's cultural. Uh, it's a cultural dictate and obligation. So uh, besides the practicality offered by uh, items of uh, clothing, um, there is then the, the poetry of it or the art of it. Uh, which is to go above the level of practicality, right? right? Because then you're going above the primitive need of clothing to the aesthetics need of clothing and the poetry of it, colors, texture, cut, fit, um, uh, flair, and all those things. It's also a statement of, of, of uh, net worth that you can, it's, it's a way of letting people know how much money you have. Sometimes fashion, in my opinion, it, it, it in many ways is, is, a, is a, um, a status symbol. Because if I'm buying $20,000 dresses, I know what the $20,000 dresses look like. Only the other women buying dresses in that price range will recognize my dress. So it's a status symbol. I think that uh, in terms of in the uh, framework and context of style and and poetic and aesthetic considerations regarding uh, fashion and clothing, uh, the status symbol part is a minuscule um, uh, point or aspect of it because one can look appallingly ill-fitted <laughs> in a very expensive clothing. And I've seen that. So it's, uh, the, the, the expensive clothing doesn't guarantee an excellent, agreeable fit. Not at all. So it's about, in the end, it's also about the, it has to work with the body. It has to fit. The fit has to work. The fit is so important above everything else. And that's where you have things like the aesthetics when it come in, where you have to know how to uh, um, compose. Because fashion is what I call our cultural skin. There is epidermis, which is biology. The, the outer skin, you have the epidermis and the dermis. The dermis is the skin underneath, right? Then you have the cultural epidermis, which is fashion. 
right? And um, uh, there are those who who like to poeticize it in the process of 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 of, of wearing it. And I think those I think those are the kind of people that you see in Vanity Fair best dressed list and um, other um, uh, versions of best dressed list. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So fit is fit is important. It is. It yeah. is. I love your portraits. I love the work you're doing. Nollywood was a beautiful book. It was. A, you portrayed Nigerians so elegantly and so beautifully. And your your style, you've continued using that style with the portraits you do of Carolina Herrera and Amy Fine Collins. So I'm curious to know, when do we get to see an exhibition? When do we get to see all of this oh, beauty? Yes, okay, so it was first, uh, the portraitures were shown in a very limited capacity uh, the Museum of Contemporary Photography, MOCP, in Chicago in 2016. And then it was shown in um, uh, Arles, France. Um, uh, they have annual art photo exhibitions. It's a big deal in the uh, photo world and art world. And, um, and then it was shown uh, in Lagos, Nigeria, in May, June this year, uh, the Alias Francais. Now it's coming back to the States where it began. Fabulous. Uh, um, it's, it will be shown uh, in its fuller capacity uh, the, the, Smithsonian, the Smithsonian Museum of, of African Art in uh, starting June next year. How many pieces? How many works of art? There'll be about 34, 36 single individual portraiture, plus a grand group portrait called The School of Nollywood, uh, which was inspired by Raphael's um, uh, 15th, 16th century uh, group portraiture called The School of Athens. It's at the Vatican in Rome. Interesting. Yeah, and it measures, it measures, uh, 17 feet by uh, by uh, 27 feet. Enormous. It's quite huge. It's a war piece, yeah. I think I've seen that image on, on your Instagram page, yes, correctly? Yes, yeah. Right. So that's Smithsonian starting the 2020, June 2020. Yeah, and it, it might run for like a year, uh, a year-long exhibition, I think, or six months. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. Will you have any work here in New York? Will you have an exhibit here in New York anytime soon? Uh, I'm speaking with my art dealer, Leila Heller Gallery, about um, doing uh, uh, an exhibition uh, concurrently with uh, Smithsonian. Because sometimes it's very good that if something's happening, if something's going on <coughs> at a museum, to have that also in the gallery, it kind of uh, feed off of each other in a way. Yeah. And Chief, I remember your earlier shows with with that gallery. There were so, self-portraits. Yeah, yeah. Sartorial Anarchy. It's one, it's one of my popular, most popular uh, um, art projects, yeah. Right. RISD, you were at RISD. I remember being up there at Providence and one of your portraits was on the bus stops. Yeah. They were so fond of the work you did. 
yes, yes. And, and now, I want, and now one of the pieces, uh, Sartorial Anarchy number five, uh, which comprised, uh, which was uh, quotations of the mac- macaroni dandies of, uh, of Regency England wig, uh, married with uh, an uh, English Norfolk jacket, a French uh, 70s shirt, a Yoruba Nigerian um, three-quarter trousers, uh, First World War spats, and 1970s Gucci shoes, and a Zulu, Zulu fighting stick from 1930s. They're all in, they're all in this one like picture but that normally it doesn't work together, hence the anarchy in the tutorial. So right now it hangs in the, um, it was, it's been stored in the uh, 19th century European galleries um, at the Rizzi Museum. Fantastic. Which is quite uh, a first to have such an African subject uh, amongst the English gen- European gentries. Interesting. Yeah. So, the narrative. What is the narrative? Of what? Of that work. Yeah, well, it's about the fact that um, one can reconcile differences. That is the gist of it, really. Uh, we, make an, we make a big issue of differences, oftentimes. That we have a lot more uh, in common than we have in differences. So normally, all these uh, aforementioned items of clothing that I use for sartorial anarchy number five shouldn't have any reason to coexist at all on a body. But uh, I find a way to uh, true artistic liberty an anarchic state of mind, um, uh, married, married all of them together, and it worked marvelously. Early in your career, you were doing a lot of self-portraits. And so that is sort of segue to portraits. But with the self-portraits, it's really a way of self-expression. And I guess that's a whole connection with the Cover Girl series, because you got to express yourself define the message that you wanted to send. But what was the underlying thread that motivated you to initially do self-portraits? I mean, first, the self is readily available, right? <laughs> it's so true, readily available. <laughs> um, uh, I have a tendency that I can't easily quantify whereby um, I don't feel the self within. I I see myself as another being. I kind of like remove myself. So doing self-portraiture for me is like to, uh, it's like uh, seeing myself as the other. In someone self. else's eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a way to objectify the self, right? Um, the self as mirrored, right? 
uh, not the veritable physical self, right? So uh, self-portraiture is here also. So I think that for each of the self-portrait work I've done, there are very different ways of engaging the self, the notion of the self, of selfhood, if you like. Um, so they're all, they're, each of them are very different. For the Cover Girl series, I use the self to kind of uh, claim the space of, of models of color who were marginalized in the fashion industry mm -hmm. and media in general. So by doing, I took liberty to uh, to claim that space for for them, right? Right. That was that was the the, the main impetus of Cover Girl to claim a space for the girls so we are denying covers, as it were. So um, and then with the, with the Satria Arnaki series, it was more about. Uh, taking vacation from the self. So, so when you're photographing yourself, you're creating an image of yourself, the other self, that people can judge. Does that have anything to do, or do you ever think about that when you're doing your self-portraits? Because people always judge people based on how you look. But when you change your image, People are judging that image, not the true person. I think even if, I think the, if, if you tap into the idea of uh, the the notion of the self, right? I mean, for example, when you are asleep, right? Is there any self in the equation? There is no self. I guess if, not, if not just, unless if, you're dreaming of yourself. <laughs> If if you if you're sleeping, it, it's not aware of time and space or the self, right? The self it happens when you wake up and and uh, enter the realm of consciousness, and uh, you know you have a name. And you just, just think about the idea of name, right? Are you really like Phyllis? What does Phyllis mean? P H Y L L I S. Is that who you are? Or I K U D? Six letter words. Is that who am I? Okay, so I think that the self is quite uh, is quite um, complex, really. So the self is very negotiable and it's like uh, it's very primitive, it's unbound, it's wild, and it's always in constant flux. So the self is negotiable. That's why I continue to do self portraiture because in doing that, I'm always in perpetual discovery of the various permutations of selfhood. Interesting. And so the different outfits, I don't want to call them outfits, but the wardrobe that you have, you're recreating yourself every time? The, the clothings are markers of, uh, of uh, our cultural markers in all its varieties and contradictions and manifestations. So that is how I employ uh, uh, items of clothing and uh, self-adornment in the portraiture. They are not in itself um, uh, 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 designed to be the end result of how to read the pictures, but they are 
they do play some uh, uh, protagonistic roles in the in the in the overall um, compositions. Well, I know when I view your portraits, your self-portraits, it always makes me think. And not, not only do I think of the image I see, the colors I see, but every item of clothing and the other items that you use in your portraits really do make me think. And it makes me question how they're all connected. So they're thought-provoking. And, and some of it also is purely subconscious as well. Hmm. Interesting. Know? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and you know that the subconscious mind is is where it's happening. And a lot of things that we do is quite, it's, it's subconscious really, and we don't even know it. Right, right. So what are you doing next? Oh, I have, um, I have, I have plenty of, uh, of body of work that I could be doing for the next uh, 80 years, mm. if not more. <laughs> So I just uh, um, uh, hope that uh, I have uh, more time to do as, uh, to execute many of them as possible. But I have plenty of uh, wonderful, wondrous, <laughs> uh, exquisite, um, delightful uh, bodies of work that I want to actualize in execution of them. I'm happy to hear that, and I can't wait to see. It's been great talking with you, I.K. You always keep my brain lit up. And um, right? it was always an advent- adventure. Yeah, yeah. I had so much fun. It was, it opened my eyes, that's for sure. In fact, it made me a cerebral woman. <laughs> Touche. Touche. <laughs> Thank you, I.K. My pleasure. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.